Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. It's good to be back with Collected Talks of David Solomon. We'll be beginning the podcast in 2022 with David's six-part overview series of Jewish history. Part one of the series looks at the Second Temple period, spanning the years roughly between 500 BCE and the beginning of the Common Era. This series was presented for Chabad South Africa and Dominion Shul in Melbourne. The talks were filmed and recordings can be found either on David's YouTube channel or via the website davidsolomon.online. In this six-part series, I'm going to take us all the way through Jewish history. I'm not going to introduce too much now because there's a lot of material to get through. But I want to make a couple of prefatory remarks. I want to just say a couple of things at the beginning. The first is, as I'm sure is going to be obvious to some of you, that number one, if you follow this series carefully and you listen to everything I say, it's a big claim, but I'll go with it, you'll come out with basically a master's level education in Jewish history. We're going to cover a lot of material. We're not so much concerned with dates and things, although that's important, but we want to understand the mechanics of Jewish history, why things happen when they happen, how Jewish history itself is embedded in world history generally. So uh, that's the uh, first thing I need you to understand. The second is that everything we're going to talk about in this series are just headlines. In fact, they are headlines, shepherd headlines. Every door you open in Jewish history will take you into a whole journey of discovery. What I'm telling you now is basically what you would need to know if you were sitting at a fancy dinner party and the subject of Jewish history came up in any period, what the minimum is you would need to know to understand what is being spoken about. Or if you open a book and it's discussing any period of Jewish history, what is the minimal information on a framework level that you would need to know would make sense of that material? And I think it's a very, very useful guide. I'm going to show you now the basic framework that we're going to use. And those of you who've seen me speak before will know that... I love this. That is Jewish history. And... In an overall sense, Jewish history is, uh, well, uh, actually, before I, before, before I show you why that line is Jewish history, I generally preempt with this remark as well, because as some of you may have seen uh, a talk I've given a few times called The Whole of Jewish History in One Hour, where we try and condense it even further. And I make this remark at the beginning of that talk, and I'm going to make it again now, is that for many people, for many sages and authorities, the study of Jewish history is important on two fundamental levels. One is, it's a mitzvah ase which means it's a positive commandment from the Torah 
to learn the history of the Jewish people. Zechor yemot olam, says the Torah. Remember the days of the world. Binu shnot dor vador. Understand the years of every generation so that we can see the evolving and the revelation of the entire continuum of the Jewish people in the world and what it's for and where it's leading the world. And the other reason the study of Jewish history is extremely important is because, especially today, is because it reaches to the, and we're going to talk about this a little later tonight, is that it reaches the very, very heart of that very obscure concept that we talk about called Jewish identity. And understanding where you came from and understanding what it means to be part of this phenomenal continuum uh, is the key to understanding one's place in the world. Being Jewish and running around saying, oh, I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish, I'm so proud to be Jewish, but not knowing anything about Jewish history is like being in a ship and not only not, where it's, not only not knowing where it's going, but you don't even know that that ship is on an ocean. But that ship is on an ocean and that ship is going somewhere and it came from somewhere. And that's what Jewish history is really trying to enable, the topic of Jewish history is trying to enable us to understand. So the framework I'm going to be discussing in this next six weeks deals with this enormous body of knowledge and trying to bring it down so that we can uh, come to terms with it and understand its framework. The framework that I'm using was not made by me. It is a framework that emerges naturally from Jewish history for quite interesting mystical reasons that we won't go into now. But I'm also, and I don't want to shock anyone here, but I'm going to be using the secular dating system. Once again, for two reasons. One is that people are very familiar with that. And the other is because it's very convenient for us because this we can call minus 2000. That's 2000 BCE. And we can call this, not minus, we can just call this 2000, which is approximately where we are now. And therefore, we would call that zero. There was no year zero, but theoretically, we're going to call that the year zero. Minus 1,000, minus 500. We can fill in some 500 blocks here. So we're going to call that 1,000, 1,500, and 500. All right, so what we have here is Jewish history divided up into five discrete 500-year blocks. That's 500 years. That's a long period of time. If you think about 500 years ago, you're already talking about the early 1500s, and think about how the world has changed since that time. So 500 years is a block, but on this particular map of Jewish history, it doesn't look like a lot because Jewish history has been going on for a long time and 4,000 years is not a biscuit. Now, in the course of these six weeks, I don't know which color to take, so I've taken them all. In the course of this six weeks, we're going to be looking for the most part at discrete 500-year blocks. And I'm going to be starting today with this one here. This is so nobody gets confused. We are going to zoom in on the period from approximately minus 500, that's 500 BCE, to the year zero. 
What's then going to happen is we're going to do subsequently the remain four four five hundred year periods up until today, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at this entire period in the last talk because this entire period here, everything here, is the Bible. Now, <laughs> it doesn't mean that the Bible is not historical. But it does exist in a slightly different framework in relation to uh, the objective history of, of the Jewish people and, uh, and their emergence into the world. This is a system I've done a few times. Bear with me. It won't be confusing, but we're going to start tonight. I'm going to wipe this off the board now, and we are going to zoom in on the first period we're going to look at today, minus 500 to zero. But just bear in mind that we're going to go forward and then we're going to come back and we're going to do the Tanakh at the end. Because really where we're going to start off tonight is really the end of the Bible. And I'm going to zoom in. By the way, if anybody in the in-house audience has any questions, then uh, maybe save them till the end. Or if they're questions of immediate comprehension, then please let me know. Yep. I know that... Uh, you at home can't see just how many people I have here. There's several hundred, and they're, they're all spread around uh, this enormous hall because of uh, social distancing, but we'll, uh, we'll do our best. All right. Louder, so we can hear in the back. Yeah, very good, very good. Always, always, always someone. Now, uh, I'm zooming in. I'm zooming in. Does everybody follow what I'm doing so far? Yep. Don't get as confused as I am. Just stay with the program. We're going to call this minus 500. And we're going to call this zero. We're going to divide this up into centuries. Minus four, minus three, minus two, minus one. And every 500-year block of Jewish history has a name. And the name of this particular period of Jewish history... Not, once again, not made up by me, but called within whichever discourse of Jewish history you're in, whether you are in a uh, religious discussion, whether you're sitting around with academics, everyone knows this period by the same name. And I'm going to write it on the board, and I'm going to transliterate it. Put your hand up if you know the words I'm about to write on the board. Perfect. It's known as Bayit Sheni. What's the meaning of the word Bayit? House. Sheni means second. So we know this as the second house, or as more commonly referred to, because house means the house of God, of course, the second temple period. Now, the Second Temple period is a very, very complex period. And scholars have been crawling all over it for a long time. And some people find it so complicated, they even get a little scared and confused by it. But they don't have to. Because what we're going to do tonight is we're going to really break it down and understand what is happening and how that entire period is embedded generally in what's going on around it and how those things can sometimes help us to explain uh, what's going on within it, because it is this period, perhaps more than 
any other in Jewish history which formulates that which we come to know as Judaism as we know it, and perhaps even more critically, as Jewish identity as we know it. And we're going to look at why that is. So first of all, we start here. What, what, what begins this period of the Second Temple? What is actually kicking that off? Well, as you may have heard, Second Temple implies that there was a first temple. And that first temple got destroyed. And it was destroyed by... Who destroyed, who destroyed the first temple? Huh? Yeah, so he was, it was destroyed by, well, under Nebuchadnezzar, it was destroyed by the Babylonians, who were this great big power in the, in the region. They were a superpower of the day. The Babylonians had taken the concept of civilization even further than the Neo-Assyrians that they had displaced, and they were, they were the business. But they basically collapsed overnight because they were defeated very quickly by... The Persians, by Persia, and under the great leader Cyrus the Great. And as we've discussed, Cyrus kind of changed the nature of conquest. So it wasn't going to be just like the Assyrians or the Babylonians would have done, where they come to your country and they schmice you, they destroy you, and they take everyone away, and they destroy everything, and they repopulate it, and so on. When the Persians took over the vast Babylonian Empire, they said, we are going to allow people autonomous rule within our empire system. We're going to set up local governors and so on. And people can basically stay where they are. And in fact, we're even going to allow nations that were displaced by the Babylonians to return to their native lands and to rebuild their cultural and religious institutions. And amongst those people that Cyrus made the proclamation about were the Jewish people whose primary place in exile at the moment was uh, Babylon and now Persia. So we decided to come back. Well, a number of us decided to come back. I mean, you need to understand what it would be like. Yep. To, uh, I mean, it's shocking, Yossi. It really is. To, to, to be in a generation, imagine being in a generation where you had the opportunity to live in the land of Israel in some kind of independent Jewish state. Not that it was a completely independent Jewish state then, because it was actually under the rubric of the Persian Empire, but imagine being able to go and live in the land of Israel and fulfill the commandments of the land of Israel and the promise of the Jewish people in the land of Israel and not go. That would be astonishing. Uh, these people, a lot of people found that they had comfortable jobs in uh, Persia and Babylon, they had kids at good schools, they had nice homes, yep, they had uh, some good geshef going on there, and they just weren't yet ready or prepared to go back as uh, um, enthusiastic Zionists to rebuild the land of Israel and uh, rebuild the temple. But there was a core of people that did, about 40,000 or so, came back uh, just really prior to this period, there's the, there's the Cyrus decree, and they come back here in around minus 538, and they come back here, and they come back here under the leadership of two very unique individuals, one of whom, of course, is Ezra. Ezra. not yet, not Zerubbabel. yet, Zerubbabel, 
Zerubbabel, Ben Shaltiel, and Yehoshua, Ben Yehotzadak. These two individuals, one of whom was the grandson of the last king, or kind of the second last king, Yehoniah, and the other was the grandson of the last Kohen Gadol, of the last high priest. And as well as that, as well as coming back under, and, and that really is the generation of the return. That is the generation that was stunned by this proclamation of Cyrus. Uh, who would have thought that uh, a conqueror would proclaim that the Jews could go back. We were like we were dreaming. We couldn't believe this incredible miracle. And we came back. And we were assisted in that by the last of the prophets. There were still Nevi'im. There were still prophets. The whole of the first temple had been this kind of tri-struggle between the kingship and the priesthood and the prof prophetic institution. We had... Two last prophets. And those last prophets that were with us were who? Oh, good. You see, if my in-house audience knows the answers, all the answers, then there's no reason for me to be standing here or for them to be sitting here. But of course, these last two prophets who existed in this generation, who were assisting Zerubbabel and, and uh, Yehoshua, were Haggai and Zechariah. There is, of course, one more, Malachi, He's about to come uh, very soon. All right. And what they were doing was that they were encouraging very much uh, Yehoshua and Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. It was a politically fraught situation. There was a question as to whether Zerubbabel would attempt to not only rebuild the temple, but to restore the kingship. The Persians had appointed him Fahat Yehuda. They knew, knew the land of Judea as Yehud Medinta, and he was going to be the governor, and he was a Jewish governor that was coming from the exile in Babylon. But it was fairly clear that they did not want him restoring the kingship, but there was some discussion of that, but he never did. It remained, the kingship was not restored for the second temple. Now, the whole point about the second temple is once we get it up and running, because it was a very, very modest structure to begin with. So we're going we're gonna to build it here, around about minus 500. We're going to draw a little temple there. There's our temple. And that means that the whole of the second temple period is now kicking off. It wasn't as magnificent as the first to start with. It was going to end up being very magnificent, but it wasn't to start with. But we kick it up there, and we start the second temple. Oh. Mm. Mm. Yes, well, this is a complicated business. I've just been asked about where this sits in relation to the events as recorded in the Megillat Esther in relation to Purim. Yeah? You have to understand that every time I give a talk like that, I dread that question. Uh, and I dread it because um, the picture given to us by Chazal, by the sages of Israel, when they discuss when the Purim story happens, is not clear. Whether it happens before the rebuilding of the temple, after the rebuilding of the temple. And the picture we get from those scholars who are trying to match the biblical story of Esther with events that they know about in the Persian Empire is also not clear. 
But we believe that if the story of Esther happened, anyone who's read the book of Esther knows, if you're Jewish, knows that story is true because it has an enduring and eternal truth to it. And it is something very mystical about that. But we're not, I mean, that, and, and we're not entirely sure when it happens. I'll, I'll probably, possibly around about, around about that time is the best that we can. I'll do a little hum and touch in there to uh, indicate that. But we're not, if, I, if we have to be very, very honest with ourselves objectively, historically, we're not entirely sure when it was. And I think that's part of the brilliance of the book of Esther. Remember, so in other words, Esther is hidden. It's hidden in, uh, not only uh, in terms of the, the names and the story, but it's hidden from us historically. There's the hand of God in history at a level that is, not yet revealed to us exactly what the details were. But we're moving on. There are actually four subphases. We need to understand that there are four subsets to the Second Temple. We're going to discuss those four. And it's all about who's in control. And at the end of the day, Although we have our own autonomous temple up and running, at the end of the day, who's in charge? The Persians. And the Persian, well, the Persian phase of the Second Temple period, and it's important to know who's in charge, is going to go up to about here. But it's going to contain some very, very interesting things that I'm just going to discuss because we can't spend too long on each period, but we're going to call this the Persian period. Starts modestly, but it grows in complexity. When we come back, it's not just a temple that we have to rebuild. We have to rebuild an entire society. We have to rebuild an economy. We have to rebuild all our central cultural and religious institutions. We're still kind of editing the last kind of writings that have been received to us from the prophets, from the Tanakh, and so on. It's a very complex period, but I want to talk about something now for one minute. If you are the sort of person that is likely to get easily confused, then I need you to block your ears now, and I'll tell you, or I'll signal now, when you can come back and listen. This is a footnote, but it's a footnote that I want to say, because otherwise people hear what I say, and then they look at material and they go, oh, how come this and how come that? So why don't I just obliterate those ah oh, from the start and tell you this. We have a problem in Jewish chronology. We have a problem. If you open up some textbooks, they will tell you, most textbooks in fact, that are certainly based on academic perspectives and what the world generally regards as the objective historical reality of the Jewish people, you will see that the temple, the first temple was destroyed in minus 586 BCE and that uh, therefore the second temple was up and running uh, here in, well, it, it, it kind of initially got dedicated round about, uh, well, it got up and running around about 70 years later. So by the time we get to 500, we already have the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. But if you open up some uh, other textbooks, particularly ones that are coming from a more 
for want of a better word, from perspective, you will see that those dates are completely out. That in fact, they want us to understand that everything on this timeline is actually pushed forward by 160 years based on uh, a Midrash, and we're not going to go into that now, which tells us about the various durations of the temples. So what they want us to understand is that the first temple was not destroyed in 586 BCE, but in 426 BCE. I'm not going to, and therefore, you know, <laughs> the, the second temple wasn't rebuilt until the minus 350s. This is a very, very difficult perspective from the point of view of the secular chronology because uh, we know that the battle between the Persians and Sparta already happens at Marathon in the year minus 490. We know that by the time you get to the, you know, the, the, the 420s, the Babylonians are dust. We know, uh, and based on much chronology and so on, and I've done research into this to try and find out uh, which it is. I'm not going to make a determination now, but I just want to highlight it I'm using the secular chronology, but don't think that I'm unaware that there is an alternative chronology. And if people can prove that that alternative chronology is the more correct one, then I'm more than excited uh, to begin to adopt it. But for now, we're using the secular chronology in case people are sitting there going, um, you know, oh, what is he talking about? Well, who, who is this? Now, they probably wouldn't say it like that. During this century, the minus 400s, in other words, the 5th century BCE, we start to see the arrival of two very, very unique and important individuals. One of whom, of course, is Nehemiah, who comes and re-establishes, basically, the centralized religious and political institution or cultural institutions that need to have. He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem and he establishes the order of the service in the temple, gets things organized because it had got a bit chaotic in the following generations. And he's followed not long after by the very well-known Ezra, who comes from Babylon, from the exile in Babylon, makes Aliyah in the middle of the 5th century BCE, and Ezra's impact on Jewish history is virtually incalculable. Uh, because Ezra, uh, amongst many, many other things that he does, is he establishes the textual tradition of the Torah as the central focus of Jewish spirituality. And here, I'm, here I want to talk for a minute about Ezra because people are, oh, Ezra, and they, they don't really realize just how profound uh, his contribution is because it's not just in the establishment of the Torah and so on in the reading of the Torah and the study of the Torah because now we no longer have prophecy. Now we only really have the Torah itself as a mode of, as in, in its various modes of interpretation and understanding that are really there to guide us. But Ezra establishes something very profound about Jewish identity. We are not like other people, says Ezra. And this is going to be really critical later on, even in this talk. We are not like other people. We have a unique continuum in the world. We are more than just an ethnicity. 
We are an ethnicity, but we are something more. We are a spiritual discourse. We have a God, we have a Torah, we are a people, and we have a land. And we're not like other nations. But at the same time, we're not just a spiritual discourse either. This continuum was given to a physical, ethnic continuum in the world. And it's that unique combination of physical presence and physical continuity together with what you might call religion or a spiritual discourse unique to that people that sets the Jewish people apart and lies at the heart of Jewish identity. That is Ezra's profound contribution and that's why it makes sense that it is Ezra who comes along and finds that a lot of the guys that have been left in the land of Israel during the Babylonian exile and the destruction and so on and the rebuilding have, shock horror because you can't even imagine a generation like this, have married out. You know, there was a shortage of women and they have married local girls. And it is Ezra basically, I mean it's a bit more complex but the basis of it is, is that it is Ezra, it is Ezra who introduces really into Jewish continuity the idea that marrying out is not acceptable. He really puts a stop to intermarriage. He makes these guys divorce their wives. It's no longer going to be an acceptable practice. Jewish men need to marry Jewish women, which means once again underlining the importance of identity as both ethnicity and as religious discourse amongst the Jewish people. But I need to move on from this first phase, but there are some foundational points I want to make. So if I can just spend one more minute on the Persians, because then it will understand us, uh, help us to understand going forward. And uh, for this, I've actually got to tell you something that uh, it's not easy to say. And that is, and this is going to come as a shock to some of you, and this is, this is, this is the one where some of you will actually be pressing the the click off button and running out of the room screaming apicursus and so on but uh, I need I need to make this point because if you don't understand this it's difficult to understand some aspects of Jewish history and that's this Judaism was not always as it is now Some things became evolved throughout Jewish history. There are some core and foundational ideas that propel us forward. But the institutions of Judaism and the way things are carried out, there has been tremendous flux throughout history. And there have even been periods where we haven't exactly known what we're doing. For example, after the destruction of the first temple, and there's an exile. What are people doing? There's no such thing as shuls yet. There's no temple and we're over here. We don't even know if God can hear us in exile. I mean, this is one of the great themes of uh, Sefer Yechezkel and so on. We don't even know if God can hear us, but what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to set up some kind of, you know, building or institutions? Are we supposed to offer sacrifices? Are we not supposed to offer sacrifices? Do we pray? Do we not pray? We're, something's terribly wrong with the way things have gone over here. That's clear from the picture that the Tanakh, that the Bible portrayed to us. But we really don't know. 
So one of the great examples of that is actually sitting inside the 5th century in the Persian Empire because what a lot of people don't realise is that we didn't just have one temple. There was one temple in Jerusalem and there was another temple and here I'm going to introduce you to a very uh, important concept which is the map. I'm going to be coming back to this map throughout this series so it's worth seeing it, right? What's that? It is indeed the Mediterranean. If you don't believe me, go there. For those of you who are confused, that's the water. All right? And we can see that's, uh, easily see that's the Mediterranean because that's Italy, Greece, Turkey. There's the land of Israel. There's Egypt. There's North Africa. Yep, here's Babylon and Persia and so on. Sorry? So there is a temple here on an island in the Nile called Elephantini, which was established by a Jewish colony, who by the time you get to the 5th century have established their own temple, they're making their own sacrifices to the God of Israel. It does, I don't need to tell you, of course, that the rabbis, oh, not the rabbis, there are no rabbis yet really, but the priests who are running the show in the temple in Jerusalem are not happy about this uh, this alternative temple going on in Elephantini, but we even have still correspondence between them and so on. It's a fascinating picture for those who want to go into it. Uh, those, are the, those are the issues. We're going, I'll write that Elephantini for those who are interested. But you see, one of the reasons that supports the whole alternative chronology idea, not that I'm saying that it's specifically correct, but one of the things that supports it is the idea that some historians call the Persian period of the Second Temple the quiet period. It's a quiet period because we don't, apart from the things I've mentioned, we don't know a lot more. We do know that Ezra and Nehemiah had established some institutions of local governance. It's during this period that we start to see in various forms the beginning of what's going to become the, what the, the Knesset Hagdullah, the big Knesset, the big parliament, or the Gerusia, as the Greeks, or the Gerusia, as the Greeks might have called it, or uh, the Sanhedrin, as the name eventually became known. So there are autonomous structures being established. We know that we're basically paying taxes and tributes to Persia. We're saluting their flag every morning. But they more or less leave us alone for most of the period. It's known as a quiet period. However, everything is about to change. And in fact, it does change. Because, as you know... Put your hand up if you know why everything changes around minus 330. Well, because of a young man that decides that he's going to conquer the world. And he does. He basically conquers everything. Alexander the Great, from Greece all the way through to India. And the known world, by the way, is always wherever Jews are living. So he conquers everything in a, over the course of about 10 years, a series of uh, stunning victories, including us. So he conquers everything basically from here all the way to here, but he conquers us as well. And here's the really, really important point to understand about Alexander's conquest. First of all, he schmices the Persians. So this, he puts an end, effectively, to the Persian Empire as we knew it. 
for the time being, for the time being, it's going to come back. And I need to spend a minute on Alexander because sometimes it's a point that not many people um, understand the impact of. Because Alexander is not just about military conquests. We say this again and again. Alexander, Alexander brought with him, Alexander the Great brought with him an ideology into the world. The famous ideology of... Hellenism. And I have explained Hellenism a number of times, but I'm going to do it again in just a very, very reduced version in about a minute, and you all know what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about what happens when a Hellenistic man wakes up in the morning. You following, Mendel? Mm -hmm. What happens when a Hellenistic man wakes up in the morning? What's the first thing he does? Whoa, look at that, that's fantastic. Look at these arms, these abs, this body. There's nothing this body can't do. It can run, it can swim, it can jump. It can... Oh, what's that? Well, who's thinking those amazing thoughts? What's this incredible, precise, rational instrument in my head called my mind? Whoa, mind, body, the two together. There's nothing I can't achieve. Man is the central value of all things. And when a Jewish person, when a Jewish man wakes up in the morning, he says, Modani, he doesn't bother looking at his body. It's pathetic. And... Jewish people have never gone according to what they can see, right? the values of truth and beauty and harmony that the Greeks valued. The people of Israel have always gone according to what we have heard. Shema Yisrael. And what are we hearing? What are we listening to? We're ultimately listening to that inner voice inside us that tells us the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil, concepts that the Greeks didn't really originally have. In fact, it has been said that uh, they gave us art and we gave them guilt. But the cross-fertilization of Hebraic and Hellenic culture really creates the whole of the Western world that's going to follow in the next couple of millennia. And what's really critical to understand about that, about Alexandra and Hellenism and that ideology, and this is super important, this is super important, that for the Greeks, <laughs> they didn't really care where you came from or what ethnicity you belong to. If you think like us, you are one of us. The whole of Hellenic culture is the idea of a conceptual view of the world that is what they are trying to share and what they are trying in some cases even to coerce. That is why this is such a profound clash because it clashes between the idea of Ezra that the Jewish people is a unique body in the world ethnically and spiritually, and the Hellenic idea that everybody can be part of the same team. You just have to see the world in a certain way, and that certain way is whatever the Greeks tell you it's meant to be. 
Now, it won't come as a shock to you to hear that uh, Alexander died. And uh, he died fairly young, as so often happens to men who try to conquer the world. And when he died, his empire was basically divided up amongst the, his, gen his primary generals, who we know as the Diadochi. And I'm going to draw this map again so I can show it to you uh, even more clearly. After Alexander... So everybody's okay. We've got the Persian period. The Persian period, the quiet Persian period with a few things happening. Suddenly, Alexander's in town, conquers us, and uh, Alexander's okay with us, but the Diadochi are a bit different. And basically, we have the land of Israel. We have the Mediterranean here. Here's, here's the land of Israel. And amongst his generals, there are basically, well, there are a number of generals, but the two that concern us is a general called Ptolemy, spelt Ptolemy, who said, oh, I'll have that, thank you very much, and starts the Ptolemaic dynasty, predominantly in Egypt, and another general called Seleucus, who said, oh, I think I'll have that, thank you very much, and starts the Seleucid dynasty. So each of these two entities named after the generals that be, who, be, of Alexander who began them after his death when they were ripping apart his conquests. These are two Hellenic dynasties. They're not strictly speaking Greek because they're here, but they are Greek speaking and Greek culture. They are Hellenic. And as I've said before, in the ancient world, it was very, very trendy to be Hellenic. These guys are trying to out lean each other and for much of this century we are a basketball between these two dynasties that's really important to understand no less than five wars and we are the buffer state between the two but beyond that something else emerges in this period right here as a direct result of this culture clash between the Hellenic and the Hebraic and that of course is the translation of the Torah into Greek. That is a classic Hellenic project, to take someone's most valued cultural asset and put it on a table and dissect it like a cat and just translate it into Greek because they wanted to know what it was. Now, some people think that's very useful, but I'm amongst those who think that at the end of the day, that was probably tragic because once you translate the Torah, you move away and you deviate from the true revelation of the Torah in the language of Hebrew, and we have paid for that translation many times with blood ever since. There's a famous story about the translation that actually belongs to the letter of Aristeas, which is a pseudepigraphic letter from a century later, but it tells us that 70 great rabbis came to Egypt and, they, and uh, Ptolemy II put them all in separate rooms, and they miraculously all came up with the same translation. And, of course, my father used to say that uh, that is not a miracle. What would be a miracle is if you put 70 rabbis in the same room and they came up with the same translation. <laughs> that would be the miracle. However, uh, that's a classic example of a Hellenic project. Uh, the translation of the Torah, which we call the Septuagim, the Targum uh, Shivim, the Targum of 70, that happens here. 
However, back and forth, back and forth between these two dynasties, and eventually we end up in the control of the Seleucid dynasty, uh, who is ruled, by the time you get to here, uh, it is ruled by a guy called Antiochus III. And it's very, very difficult to find a ruler in the ancient world who would be as similar as Antiochus III to Donald Trump. Um, now, uh, th th that is an essay in itself, and we could go into that in great detail. Those of you who want to look at Antiochus III as a figure uh, can do so and see if I'm right or wrong, but I think I'm right. <laughs> and like Donald Trump, Antiochus III was a great supporter of the Jewish people. He made all sorts of decrees in support of Judaism. He not only for non-Jews in relation to Jerusalem and the sanctity of the temple and <coughs> the inviolability of the land of Israel and so on, but even for Jews themselves. Uh, Antiochus III said that Jews living uh, in the Seleucid Empire needed to be faithful to Jewish laws and so on. So he was a big supporter. He sent sacrifices and gifts to the temple and so on. Big ruler. But... While he's running around being Antiochus III here, there is a growing entity, a growing entity that is just starting to take its place on the world stage, and that, of course, is Rome. And Rome's sphere of influence is expanding, and they actually end up fighting a war against Antiochus III and the Seleucid Empire in order to stop his influence. As a result of that, he had to pay massive reparations. He lost that war, including giving his own son as a hostage to the Romans. It explains what the psychology of someone like Antiochus IV, his son, when you think about the issues that he had, because he'd basically been given by his father to the Romans as a hostage. But Antiochus IV does eventually come to the throne, um, in fact, his father, Antiochus III, was killed while raiding a temple to find the funds to pay the Romans, um, even though he himself believed, as many people in the ancient world believed, that temples were inviolable. Nevertheless, he found himself in Iran, and he thought, oh, no one's going to notice if I, if I raid a temple in northern Iran, but unfortunately, it cost him his life. So the parallels, anyway. Uh, Antiochus IV comes and Antiochus IV uses an argument that we're going to see uh, a little bit more of uh, often in Jewish history where it is along the lines of, ah, ah, the Jews. Yes, I roll, rule over a whole lot of Jews and they've got a temple and so on. Um, I don't have a problem with Jews per se. Some of my best friends are Jews. I have a problem with Jewish spirituality. I have a problem with their worship of God. I have a problem with their uh, ritual of circumcision. I have a problem with their observance of the Sabbath. I have a problem with their dietary law. I have a problem with everything about it because they're just trying to set themselves up as a particular people. And the Greeks don't look at the world that way. You need to think like us. You need to get in the gymnasium and work on your bod. You need to be walking around talking philosophy. You need to deconstruct things. And frankly, um, I'm going to not eradicate the Jews, I'm actually going to eradicate Judaism. So in a series of decrees, he attempts to do that. At the same time that he's doing that, more and more Jews are getting caught up in the politically correct thinking of the times, 
which was Hellenic. So you get guys who are reversing their circumcisions and they're running around in the nude in the gymnasium and they are getting involved in philosophical ideas that are less than kosher and so on. And it gets to the point where they're saying, well, we have this temple. What difference does it make if we offer um, sacrifices to the God of Israel? Why don't we just call the God of Israel Zeus Olympus? And frankly, what difference does it make that we're sacrificing, uh, you know, cows and sheep? May as well sacrifice pigs. Pigs, perfectly good animal. So we get to a point where we're actually sacrificing, well, not we, but they are actually Jews who are Hellenic, have taken over the temple and are sacrificing pigs to Zeus Olympus in the temple itself. And as you can imagine, there are one or two Haredim who don't like that. So the rebellion, of course, starts, and this really inaugurates the whole of the next phase. So the Greeks are going to go up to here, which begins with Alexander, and it's going to go up to here because, of course, in the 160s, in the middle of the 2nd century BCE, we, of course, have the Maccabean Revolt and the whole story that's a terrible, that is a terrible menorah, I've got to tell you. And the whole uh, of the Maccabean revolt and the story of Hanukkah. Because, and I have, uh, as I said at the beginning, these are only headlines. Uh, as some of you will know, I've done an entire series on just the Maccabean revolts and their battles and so on. And anyone who studies that history will be able to tell you that <laughs> there's no doubt about it, the defeat of the Seleucid Empire by Yehuda Maccabi, by the Hasmonean family, was nothing short of absolutely supernatural miraculous. That, that, is, that is the true miracle of Hanukkah. The lighting, the candles and so on, that's very nice. But the real miracle is the uh, military miracle by a small guerrilla force against what was effectively a military superpower. Yeah? Uh, it would be like, you know, the United States being defeated by Dominion Shaw. <laughs> now, why do we only commemorate the, um, the lights? Well, we don't just commemorate the lights. When we say Alanisim, Valapur Khan, we really commemorate. Right? Sorry? Well, your question is excellent. Your question is excellent. Obviously not within the scope of what I can go into now. We embody, we embody the miraculous in the candles. There's no question about it. But uh, Chazal and everyone is telling you that the, that the real miracle, Anetsifalapurkan, is really in the, uh, in, in the military thing. And the more you go into it, the more you can see that. I fully understand that the mitzvah of Hanukkah and the Gemara and Shabbos on my Hanukkah and so on goes into the, all the candles. And it's very important. But the... Uh, uh, since we're dealing with history. And also, it's, it, it's also the message taken from Hanukkah, the indomitable spirit of the Jewish people that will fight for the truth of the idea of God in the world against anything that tries to crush it is the enduring message and miracle of Hanukkah. Uh, it would be difficult to say that uh, what was a nice party trick of the candles that we're still doing two, over 2,000 years later is interesting, but the, it's living with the message of Hanukkah. And that's why, that is why it was so profoundly at the basis of 
what is going to happen over the next hundred years. This miraculous situation that turned into, so this is, that's the Persian. This is what we call, it's called the Greek, but really it's Hellenic is what we really should uh, call it. We're under the control of the Hellenes. And this is the in, completely independent, eventually, Hasmonean kingdom. Many of you will already know of the idea of the Hasmonean uh, entity. Uh, it lasts for a hundred years. Um, I've said this before, but I will also say this again. I don't want to shock anybody or upset anybody, but you know that Hanukkah, with the, ca with the candles and with everything and all that lovely stuff is really only the warm, fluffy PR exercise of the Hasmoneans. I mean, overall, what we're going to see in the Hasmonean dynasty is an unmitigated train wreck in slow motion. Uh, it starts really, really well. It starts very exciting. You see, if the story of the Bayit Rishon, of the first temple, was about kings, really, the story of... Uh, the second temple is really about priests, and we're going now. We're really seeing the whole idea of what the state of Israel would look like if it was run by very, very religious priests, Kohanim, who control the temple. But it starts. The Hasmoneans were a priestly family, and it starts beautifully. It starts with Yehuda Maccabi, who's like a kind of George Washington figure, and he uh, he's going around. He's winning all these amazing battles, but he already dies only three years, two or three years after the dedication of the temple. And of course, you know how the succession works. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Judah, and then he is succeeded by his brother, Yonatan. And Yonatan is succeeded by his brother, Shimon. And that's basically the first 30 years of the Hasmonean entity. And as it progresses more and more, the Hasmonean Republic is gaining more and more independence. A lot of people don't realize this, but one of the reasons that enabled, because it's not like the Seleucids just went away, they kept coming for a while, but one of the reasons why that Hasmonean entity was able to stay intact is because they had treaties with Rome. Rome, this new growing power, recognized Yehuda Maccabi and the Hasmonean entity in the Senate of Rome and had a treaty with them. But that alone wasn't going to enable them to stand up on their own. They had to fight battles and they had to forge out their independence. But by the time you get to around 130, minus 130, the Hasmonean entity is more or less completely independent. They have no one really ruling over them. They have treaties with allies but they are independent. And by the time you get to around minus 130, you're already in the next generation of the Hasmonean leadership. And that, of course, is embodied in the enormously influential and impactful figure in Judaism of... Yeah, Not yet. You know this, but you just don't realise this is who I'm referring to. We know him, well, when I say we, I mean, we is a big term, but we, I mean, though, in his, yes, in history, he's known as John Herkinus, and, or otherwise known also as Yochanan Kohen Gadol, Yochanan the high priest, and he was 
completely independent, total authoritarian ruler. And um, he didn't call himself king. He would have referred to himself as an ethnarch. But he was both the absolute ruler of the Jewish people, king in all but name, and he was also the high priest. Sorry? Yeah, he minted coins of himself. Well, they're also they already started minting coins from Shimon, from his father, and uh, Yochanan Hirkonos uh, is not only minting coins; he's conquering places, and with the great benefit of historical hindsight. he may have made some mistakes. I, I, I don't want to be the one who judges that. It's not my role to judge historical figures. I wasn't there, not in this incarnation at least, and I wasn't, and, and who are we? We don't know the circumstances. But it does seem like some of the things he did were policy decisions that weren't necessarily that smart. One of which, or well, it seemed smart at the time, but didn't, have, didn't work out well. And the most famous of those, of course, is round about here, Round about here, Yochanan Hirkinus, round about here is his conquest of a nation that is living uh, to the southeast of Israel called the Idumeans. Now, the Idumeans have been around for a while. This is their new incarnation. They used to be called Edom in the Bible. They have a continuum going back. Uh, right to uh, biblical times, and they are conquered by Yochanan and Hyrcanus. And when he conquers them, he says, oh, well, what am I going to do with this people that I've conquered? Yep, if I don't do anything, I'm going to have some demographic issues. So he takes them, the entire nation, and he forcibly converts them to Judaism. This idea that Judaism has never been into forced conversions is simply not true. Yochanan Herkonos circumcised all the males and threw the entire nation in the Jordan River as a mikvah and said, you're now Jewish. To understand that and to understand historical situations would be to understand that that would be exactly as though the state of Israel today, after its conquest of what's become known as the West Bank, after the conquest of Yehuda and Shomron in 1967, had taken the entire Palestinian population and said to them, you're now Jewish, and forcibly converted them to Judaism. Which some may not think is such a bad idea. <laughs> it still might be a good idea, but we'll get back to that maybe uh, much later, uh, after we've turned off. Now... But that was to have bad karma, unfortunately, and we're going to look at that in a moment. Uh, now, I do need to say one other side note to all of this while this is going on, because there's a very, very important facet of the Jewish world that is starting to take shape that we can't ignore going forward, and it's this. It is round about this time or during this period or just prior to this period, maybe starting under the leadership of Yonatan and Shimon of the previous generation, but certainly coming to the fore during the time of Yochanan Hirkonus, that two different visions of Judaism are emerging. One of which is uh, emerging from a very elite, elite group of priests uh, 
who was saying that Judaism is really all about the Beit HaMikdash. It's really all about the temple. It's about the sacrifices. It's about the priests. It's about what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, everyone's important, but the priests are really the main story. And when it comes to the spiritual discourse of the Jewish people, and the priests are the essence of what it is all about going forward. And the other was, and they, and they of course, took on a famous brand's name, which we know as the Sadducees, or the Tzdukim, but we'll use the English term, from the house of Tzadok. They claimed heritage all the way back to Tzadok, a high priest in Davidic times and so on. However, an alternate vision was arising as well. And that is uh, a vision of Judaism that had the Torah that had been implanted in the Second Temple by Ezra as the basis of Jewish spirituality, which by now had acquired a very, very impressive body of precedent and common law and interpretation. And, and, and it's, not too big a, it's not too big a heresy to say this, as a result of the encounter of the oral Torah with, the, with Greek culture, that that oral Torah was now starting to undergo forms of systematization, that it was starting to be organized as a distinct body of knowledge that could be studied and immersed in and so on. It was not just something organically lived, but it was a body of intellectual ideas as well, as well as ideas of interpretation of the Torah, as well as things starting to be written down and so on. The people responsible for uh, the transmission of the oral Torah and those ideas and its hermeneutics and its mode of interpretation went on, who were basically a meritocracy, not an elitist priesthood, but a meritocracy for those who wanted to rise within that system. And they took on the brand name of the Prushim, or the, this horrible word Pharisees in English, which has just been made ugly by the New Testament. But we know them as the Sofrim, meaning the scribes, or the Prushim, those who separated themselves because they were observing the oral Torah traditions regarding purity and so on. But we can also simplify it by just calling them the rabbis. And these two distinct discourses were starting to compete. And for most of, up until, say, late into Yohanan Hyrcanus's career, the Hasmonean leaders were siding for the most part with the scribal classes. Not so much, even though they were priests politically, they wanted to be careful that they were in accord with those who were transmitting the Torah traditions because they still realized that at the end of the day, the Torah was their legitimacy. But once we get late into Yohanan Hirkonus's career, uh, we start to see a shift within the Hasmonean leadership towards the Sadducees, away from Pharisaic factions. This is a very, very complex subject within late Second Temple history, and we can't go into it too much, but what you need to be aware of is that that is a framework going forward that all leaders of the Jewish people were negotiating with in the late Second Temple period. And it wasn't sure which one was correct. We know now that uh, that temple got destroyed. So we know which idea eventually won out in the continuum of Jewish history. 
Yohanan Hirkanus, very big, very strong, very powerful leader, ruler, but he died. And he was succeeded by his son, Yehuda, who we also know as Yehuda Aristobulus. Now, Yehuda Aristobulus was really the first to call himself king. He said, oh, I don't have the inhibitions that dad had. I'm high priest and I'm king. I'm ruling this as the high priest. This is a kohanocracy, a priestocracy, and I'm going to rule it. And like many other despots, he put anyone whose position or status might challenge his authority, he locked them up, including his mother and his brothers. In fact, he starved his mother to death in prison. Don't do that. That has very bad karma. Uh, because after a year, he died a very agonizing death. And his wife, a woman that we know as Shlom Tzion, she comes along and she frees his brother from prison and marries him. They didn't have any children and she married him as a lever at marriage. His name was Alex or Alexander or Alexander Yanai as we know him. Now the rabbis, the Prushim, were completely scandalized by that. Why? Don't we have lever at marriage? Don't we have Yibum in the Torah? Well, exactly. Not just any Kohen. He was a Kohen Gadol. There's no way that he was going to be allowed to marry the Leveret wife, or, you know, his sister-in-law. Kohen Gadol can only marry a Wirijan and can't marry uh, a Yibum. So therefore, uh, nevertheless, the Sadducees were okay with it because by this time, Alexander Yanai was sided with the uh, Sadduc Sadducees, so it wasn't going to be an issue for him. So we have Yochanan Hirkanus basically followed by Alexander Yanai, although we do have uh, an intervening year of Yehuda Aristobulus, but Alexander Yanai is going to go for the next nearly 30 years, and he is, and he just, I mean, I have said this before, but maybe it's the only way to really understand Alexander Yanai is to think of him in terms of Ariel Sharon on crack. Because he was conquering everything. He really turned the land of Israel into kind of this regional superpower. And he, was, he conquered this, he conquered that. And he was like, who knew how history would go? For all he knew, the Judean Empire or the Judean Kingdom might become a Judean Empire, might go on to be one of the great empires of the world. No one knew that. And Alexander Yanai certainly didn't know that wasn't how it was going to turn out. He was acting as though he was a proper Jewish conqueror. However... In the course of his reign, during this period here, in the course of his reign, uh, we see a very, very tragic civil war happening. The situation between the Sadducees and the Pharisees had become so great uh, that, and the, and the Pharisaic factions, the Prushim, the rabbis, had much more contact and were much more in touch with the, you know, just the common people. Uh, one famous uh, story that's recorded uh, in a number of different places is the idea that Alexander Yanai went to the temple on Sukkot. He tried to abolish the Simchat Bet the water libation ceremony, which is pure oral Torah tradition. He said, we're not doing that. That's not within uh, what the, the priests are on about. 
and the people said, no, we want to do it. It's our favorite thing in the whole world. And he said, no, we're not doing it. And they all, thousands of people, pelted him with their etrogs. And he turned around and slaughtered the crowd and then went on a rampage where over the course of a number of years, he crucified, basically, all of the intellectual class of the rabbis, uh, except for his own brother-in-law, Shimon ben Shetach, Shlomzion's brother, and so on. Terrible, terrible time for the scribal class. But eventually, Alexander Yanai died. He was killed in, uh, on one of his campaigns. And his wife, Shlomzion, took over. And so, what's a nice colour for her? Stand out. Shlomzion. And as I've often said, you know, Shlomzion Hamalka, Queen Salome, as some call her, her entire career and her entire outlook kind of makes us think that sometimes Jewish people were never meant to have kings, we were meant to have queens she was amazing she was such a good ruler she made peace between the Sadducees and the Pharisees she made peace between all the different classes she calmed things right down nature itself grew big in her reign say the rabbis and uh, several symbolic acts that she did such as making the Pharisaic class attend the funeral of her husband but at the same time stacking the Sanhedrin with members of the scribal class and so on. So having all of these balanced symbols, she ruled effectively for nine or ten years. But then unfortunately, as soon as she passed away, uh, in roundabout, uh, uh, you know, in the mid-60s, the situation just imploded after that because her two sons, don't get, confu don't get confused, her two sons, uh, Yehuda Aristobulus II, and Yochanan Hirkunus II uh, spent the next few years fighting it out as to who was going to be high priest, who was going to be ruler, and so on. And that situation got so bad that by the time, here we go, I saved this colour for now, by the time it got to round about minus 64, boom, we start the end, we see the end, the full implosion of the Hasmonean independent Hasmonean kingdom, republic slash kingdom, and the beginning of the new entity because in minus 65-64, almost exactly a hundred years since Judah Maccabee had fought off the Seleucids, uh, Pompus Magni arrives in Damascus and sees a complete mess going on in the land of Judea and decides that it would be a very good idea if the Romans went in there and restored order. In fact, he was basically invited to come in. We had ended up in a situation when we talk about a civil war between brothers over the Temple Mount itself. When they talk about all the stories of Sinat, Chinam and so on, towards the end of the Second Temple period, groundless hatred and all the things, that's really the moment many identify where the Divine Presence has left the Temple because we had uh, completely imploded in terms of uh, this civil war and the 
unrest and the suffering and the killing that was going on within the Jewish people themselves in the land of Israel over control of the temple. Not exactly God's picture for what should be happening and the Romans have to come in and sort it out and uh, in minus 63 approximately in walks uh, Pompey and he marches into the temple and uh, walks into the Holy of Holies and uh, rips open the curtain, walks in and says, nothing in here. And they go, well, duh, you know, like invisible gods and so on. But uh, Rome is in town. And that starts the fourth period. And the fourth period is, of course, the fourth period of the second temple is the Roman we're only doing headlines. We're only doing headlines. Now, it would be very useful at this stage if we were to talk about, when we're not going to talk about, because it's a huge subject and we could get into it, couldn't we? If we were to talk about the background of the Roman civil wars. Um, but you know how it goes that basically it ends up in a triumvirate, then another triumvirate, and eventually, you know, Caesar, Julius Caesar, having just conquered Gaul, then crosses the Rubicon in the late, in, the, in, in, in around about minus 49, and he then controls Rome and so on. And eventually uh, that situation, he, he's killed in the Senate, and then there's a triumvirate uh, basically uh, under the control of Octavian, who is going to go on and become Augustus. All of that is Roman history, and I'm sure you're all aware of it, and so on. But we need to bear in mind that in the background, all of that is happening and starts to explain what's going on. During those years, after Shlomtzion's death, after the Romans have already established Judea as a province of theirs, <coughs> uh, the country's basically being run by Yochanan Hirkunus II, after a whole lot of wars back and forth between those two, but he survives it, and he's made um, high priest and basically a kind of a, a, a shtickle ruler, but he's got some very powerful friends that are helping him do that, one of which is a ruler of the Idumeans, a Jewish, Jewish ruler of the Idumeans called Antipater. And sometimes spelled, you know, pronounced Antipater, Antipater, Antipasta. You can pronounce that a number of different ways. He's basically an Idumean strongman, but it's his bureaucratic and military know-how that is propping up Yohanan Hyrcanus' uh, rule. But uh, Antipater has a son, also an Idumean Jew, a son called Herod. And Herod is growing in power so that by the time you get to the late 40s or, uh, you know, and the, and the, the 30s of uh, that century, going forward, uh, Herod is already deciding that he would like to rule over everything. And he actually gets the Romans to, uh, to appoint him king, but he has to conquer it. And so he manages to conquer it with various military alliances and so on, and then sets about being Herod. And Herod's rule is very, very unique. Those of you who are familiar with Herod's rule, which really happens in this uh, 30, 40 year period at the end 
of this 500 years ago, leading up to the year zero. This is, this is, this is, in fact, I won't put Herod here, we'll put Herod. This is Herod's time. And Herod is an absolutely ruthless, despotic ruler. Uh, he married into the Hasmonean family to back up his legitimacy. He was a, uh, but he killed most of his family. Uh, he was arbitrary, he was psycho, he was mad, but he was also a tremendous builder. So he built, you know, uh, Caesarea, is this new kind of Roman capital. He built two places called Herodium. He built Masada, as I'm sure you're familiar with. And of course, he set about a brick-by-brick brick renovation, restoration of the whole of the temple itself to turn it into the most magnificent religious structure in the world, which he actually achieved. But he was awful. And we kept on writing to the Roman rulers, anyone but Herod, anyone but Herod. Of course, who was Herod in the first few years having to uh, answer to? Who was his immediate Roman boss? Who, who of the Roman triumvirate was in charge of the land of Israel? It was, of course, Mark Antony. And he was in Egypt because he's being intimate with Cleopatra. So Herod has to go and get confirmation from him and so on. Then Mark Antony and Octavian fight a war, and which famously at the Battle of Actium, which Mark Antony loses. All of this is known to you. And then Herod has to go to Octavian and get once again reappointed as king of the Jews and so on. And Octavian gives that to him. And now he's off and running because so long as Herod can give the Romans the tax quotas that they need and keeps peace and law and order in Judea, then no Roman emperor is going to bother him. Judea is a big deal for the Romans. It's important. It's a very, very important cog and link in, in the Eastern Mediterranean because they control Egypt, they control Syria, and they need to control the trade routes and the sea navigation routes and everything and the overland routes. Basically, control Israel, you control the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean. That's never changed. So, it was important to them. And if they had a strong man like Herod there that could do that, then that worked for Rome so long as he could do it. Uh, but it wasn't a picnic under Herod. But he did, restore the, he did restore the temple and he did renovate it. And he did that in conjunction and in concert with the rabbis and, uh, and the scribes. Now, <laughs> one last very important fact about the Herodian time is that we need to understand in perspective of Jewish history is that by the time you get to this point in history, the rabbis are starting to develop into distinct schools of thought. And the most famous of those early distinct schools of hermeneutic tradition and approach and application, the dynamic application of the oral Torah, was of course the house of Hillel. And Hillel, and I know everybody's heard of Hillel, so I'm assuming that what we're looking at here is a situation where people have heard of things but not necessarily sure where they fit, is that Hillel is basically a direct contemporary of Herod. So every time we read about Hillel, we have to realize that that is what's going on in the background. Herod was not a fan of the rabbis, but he realized that that doing things 
the way the rabbis wanted would have been okay with him doing it meant that he was going to be better able to restore order and keep the peace. However, when Herod had finished rebuild, well, when he'd basically done a lot of the work on restoring the temple and building the big platform that we now know as Harabayit and so on, completely changing the nature of Jerusalem and its, and its uh, geography and demographics. But when he finished that, he decided that he would put on the gates of the temple a giant Roman eagle. Because for Herod, the destiny of the Jewish people, the continuity of the Jewish people, the integrity of the Jewish people lay in their alliance with and subservience to Rome. It's absolutely no different from any leader of Israel today saying that the most important thing for the continuation of the state of Israel is its alliance and subservience to one of the superpowers, the United States, for example. But with Herod, it's even more so. And the rabbis went, oh, no, Herod, no, you've done a beautiful job of restoring the, the temple. You even got Kohanim to come in specially, build the Holy of Holies. You did it all nicely. But now you're going to put this Roman eagle on. So, of course, they took it down. And Herod's last decree, or uh, second last decree, because I think his last decree was that his eldest son should be killed. But his uh, one of his last decrees was that the people that tore down the Roman eagle were found and publicly burnt. Because for Herod, that was the greatest heresy, was to defy the power and might of Rome because he said, Rome is the power. And if the Jewish people are not seen to be subservient to Rome, Rome will come and destroy you. Um, he wasn't entirely wrong in that, but uh, he was wrong in terms of his misplaced understanding of where the true strength of the Jewish people lies uh, in their uh, continuum in history. So let's just spend the last minute or two just summarising, because by the time we get to the year zero, uh, Herod is dead. His, his sons are now fighting for control of the land of Israel and its various, <coughs> you know, counties, for want of a better word, you know, whether it was Eudea or Samaria or the Galil, all of which were seen as uh, different kind of geographical parts, but they were dividing those up between them. And the, and the, and the temple is still going, and the story of what's going to lead up to the temple is part of the 500 years we're going to look at starting next week. But I want to make sure that uh, I uh, get a couple of important points out before we finish. One is that although it looks very complicated, and here on this, on this uh, board I've really only got headlines, and you know I've only got headlines. We can go into much, much more detail on any of these points. But what I want people who are seeing this material kind of for the first time to understand is that we have four distinct sub-periods of the Second Temple. The Persian, the Greek or Hellenic. Remember, we're not controlled directly by Greece, but we are controlled by um, Hellenic dynasties that uh, control us. The Hasmonean, which is a completely independent Jewish republic slash kingdom, a Kohenocracy. And finally, the Romans are in town, the Roman period, which is going to take us from there until the end. 
If you can understand that, if you just understand those four sub-periods of the second temple, you already are in the top percentile of understanding that period and can really negotiate any information or data that comes along backgrounding what I've talked about tonight or today. I didn't mention at the very beginning, but I'm going to go to now because I thought of it during the talk that I didn't mention. I thought it's a good point. I'll, I should mention at the beginning, but I'll come back to it at the end. It's a very, very interesting point that I, I really want to emphasize before we finish. And that is this. This period here, which started our period tonight, minus 500, is a very, very curious and interesting period in history generally, in world history. Because so many things change in the world around that time, particularly spiritually. Minus 500 is the Buddha. It's also the time of Zoroaster. It's also the time of Confucius. It's also the time of the golden age of Greek philosophy and literature. So some people have tried to explain why all these different amazing cultural, spiritual revolutions are happening all around the world at the same time. Some people want to argue that yeah, I don't know, some cosmic rays heat up the world and shifts people's brains from a different perspective or whatever it is. And some people just say, oh, well, it's a coincidence or whatever it is they want to say as to why the world was so fundamentally different or changing around that time, why we have so many figures of change around that time. But the real question that people also ask is, well, if all that's going on in the world, where's the change happening for the Jewish people? It's not like we don't pride ourselves at being the vanguard of, you know, spiritual and philosophical thinking. Where's our great revolution in thought? Where is our great revolution of ideas and transformation of our spirituality? And the reality is, the reality is, is that that has already happened two centuries earlier in the great transformative revolution of the Nevi'im, of the prophets of Israel during the period of the late kingdom of Judah. The idea which the ideas which bring concepts such as 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 teshuvah into the world, the idea of Mashiach into the world, the idea of redemption, the idea of hope, the idea of progress, the idea foundationally is that of social justice and that there is a God in the world who demands social justice and that that God is a God who is behind all political upheavals in the world and all transformations. Nothing happens uh, unless the divine idea is behind it. But at the forefront of that, having had that revolution, having had the exile to pay for it, the destruction of the exile to pay for it, and to come back and to rebuild a temple, this temple, uh, said the prophet uh, Haggai, is going to be greater than the first. 
and we see many, many ways in which this Second Temple period brings out the idea of the Jewish people in the world because it touches so foundationally and fundamentally upon concepts of Jewish identity and so on. So if we can understand the four sub-periods and we go up to the year zero, uh, then we are well-placed to launch forward into the uh, immensely packed uh, next episode, which will be next week. I know that it's a lot of material for people to digest. I know that I cover a lot of material, but we are trying to reduce it and uh, hopefully uh, it won't be, it's not too beyond people's ability to absorb that. It's about the mechanics of history and how it works. I thank you all for listening. I thank you at home on the other side of the internet. I thank our very, very special and illustrious uh, in-house um, <laughs> Audience, I give you a clap as well. The and uh, crowd. sorry, the august, crowd. the august crowd, the crowd of Augustus, and that uh, play, and and also once again to reiterate that this uh, was sponsored by Chaban uh, South Africa and Dominion Shul uh, of uh, of Melbourne, the Shul of Love, and that uh, uh, I will see uh, as many of you as we can next week, uh, and stay safe and thank you.